Lord God, we thank you for the privilege of coming here on your day to open your word with your people. I pray that you would help me to be clear and concise and help me to be compelling and Christ-centered. pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, in 1861, America was at war. Not with England, not with Germany, but with itself. And the first major battle of that war took place at a town about 25 miles outside of Washington, D.C. called Manassas, Virginia, uh, near the Bull Run River. Depending on which side of the Mason-Dixon line, you'll know this uh, battle is either the, battle of the first battle of Manassas or the first battle of Bull Run. And what's interesting about this battle is that this was the first time that the northern and southern troops had really met each other in battle. And the assumption was that the, the northern troops would easily kind of overtake the southern army. The northern army was larger, it was better equipped, it was on the offensive going from D.C. to Richmond, and people were so confident that the northern army would win that many of the kind of social elite in D.C. actually packed up their families and carriages and took picnic baskets and opera glasses and rode out to Manassas to watch their army defeat the southern troops. <clears throat> but of course that, ar- that battle didn't quite go the way they were expecting and the southern army actually won the day. The northerners had to retreat and all of those fine people who had brought their picnic baskets and opera glasses had to run back home to Washington, D.C. It's kind of a ridiculous thought. Can you imagine kids going to a battle and expecting a picnic? But many of us as Christians do that every day. We approach the Christian life as if it should be a picnic, as if it should be something easy, something comfortable, something manageable, and instead we find that we are in a battle. Of course, knowing where you're going is going to determine what kind of equipment you bring. And the passage before us today, Paul is describing for us the equipment that Christians are called to have. And he tells us we're not coming to a picnic, we're coming to a battle. And so he describes for us here in verses 14 through 17 the armor of God. Now as we look at the armor of God, I want to just answer three questions today really. First off, do I really need the armor of God? Do I really need it? Secondly, what is it? What is the armor of God? And then finally, how do I use it? How do I use the armor of God? Now again, I think this first question, do we really need the armor of God, is an important one to ask because there's many preachers, so-called, who will tell you No, the Christian life is supposed to be something comfortable and easy. In fact, if you become a Christian and you pray the right things and you believe the right things and you have the right amount of faith and, of course, if you give to the right ministries at the right amount, then your life will be comfortable. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. You can expect nothing but prosperity. And so many people who would call themselves Christians around the world think that this is what Christianity means, having a life of prosperity because you put your faith in God. Now probably most of us here today would not endorse that theology, but many of us actually live as if we believed in a kind of prosperity gospel. I spent most of this week uh, sick with strep throat. I'm not contagious anymore, I'm on the antibiotic. But uh, most of this week I was sick with strep throat, not feeling very good, and my basic attitude towards that was to say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. 
Uh, I'm in my last week of the internship. I've got a lot of things to do. I've got to preach on Sunday. And this is just a difficulty. It's an interruption. It's a frustration. Now, why was I responding that way to that sickness? Well, it's because I expected, basically, that my Christian life should be a picnic. It should be comfortable. It should be easy. There shouldn't be roadblocks and problems and troubles. But imagine a soldier on the front line complaining that you know, he'd really like to have lobster tonight, and he just can't. And that just seems unfair and ridiculous. How do you think his fellow soldiers would respond? Well, they say, you idiot. We're in a battle. You're on the front line. What, what, what do you expect? Of course you can't have nice food. Of course you can't sleep in a comfortable bed. We're in a war zone. Many of us as Christians need to be reminded of that as well. And that's why Paul goes to such pains to tell us that the Christian life is a life of warfare. And so if we are engaged in a cosmic conflict, then we need uh, this kind of armor, this kind of protection, the armor of God. So what is the armor of God? I want to look at this uh, just briefly today. Uh, uh, There are six pieces to the armor of God. If you've grown up in Sunday school or gone to VBS, kids, you've probably heard of these things. The belt of truth, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. As a little boy growing up, this was one of those passages I always really liked. Uh, It had a lot of interesting stuff in there. And a lot of preachers, when they preach through this, will take one sermon for each piece of the armor. We're not going to do that uh, today. But uh, I would encourage you to get on Sermon Audio or Monergism, look up Armor of God. You'll find some great studies on this. And actually, the men at Kirk of the Plains just recently went through a book on spiritual warfare that looked at these pieces of armor uh, in some detail. So those of you who maybe want to follow up can can get a hold of that. But just briefly, let's look at each of these six pieces of armor to understand what they're for, how they function. The first thing we read of is in verse 14. Paul says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The basic command Paul gives is to stand. That's the imperative here. But he tells us to stand by by fastening on the belt of truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness. And I think these two pieces of armor, while they have different emphases, are kind of pointing towards similar things. When we read about the belt of truth, especially as Reformed people, we may think, oh, I know exactly what Paul's talking about. He's talking about doctrine. He's talking about theology. He's talking about the importance of of knowing God, of knowing the scriptures, uh, of being able to give an answer. And so he's really underscoring here, right at the beginning, the importance of truth. Well, of course, Paul does believe that truth matters. He's not afraid of theology. The whole first half of Ephesians is nothing but straight, rich, deep theology. As he explores soteriology and anthropology and all sorts of ologies and uh, deep things. But that's not actually what this belt of truth is probably referring to. Uh, The word that's used here and other passages that are similar show us that what Paul is talking about here is probably better thought of as something like the belt of of truthfulness, the belt of, of integrity, the belt of sincerity. What Paul is saying is that if we are to stand in the day of battle, if we are to have success in this conflict, then we can't be people who who say one thing and live another way. 
Hypocrisy is a great danger in the Christian life. And so as we begin to think about how to stand firm, we have to think about the testimony of our life. And this makes sense if you think about how warfare would have worked itself out in, in Bible times. You've seen pictures, kids, of people in Bible times. And what are they wearing? Jeans and a button-up? No, they're wearing usually long cloaks. And imagine trying to run a long distance in that long cloak or, or fight with someone or jump or duck or dodge. You couldn't do it very easily. And so when men went to fight, they would wrap up their clothing and, and, and put on something like a belt or, or a girdle to, to hold that together. They'd be able then to stand and to fight and not be tripped up and falling down. And that's what Paul is saying for us here. Uh, if we don't have lives of sincerity, of integrity, if we don't live honorably, if we talk to our neighbors about how loving of a father God is for us, and yet we're angry and frustrated and short-tempered with our children, we're taking away with one hand what we're trying to hold out with the other. If we talk about how, how, how God has forgiven us of, of all of our sins and trespasses, and yet we hold on to that grudge with that relative or that co-worker, people see that. And it's as if we're trying to run into the battle and, and tripping over our own cloak. So Paul is calling us to put on the belt of truth, to live a life of sincerity and integrity and holiness so that we can stand firm in the midst of conflict. And I think there's a similar idea, too, here with the breastplate of righteousness. Now, now there's a lot of discussion about this. Some read about the breastplate of righteousness, and their minds go where, where probably many of our minds go, the righteousness of Christ. What else could we clothe ourselves with than Christ's righteousness alone? And, of course, if we were talking about what we bring to God, if we were talking about what it is that saves us, we can think of nothing but the righteousness of Christ. Your good works, my good works, are as filthy rags, the Bible says, outside of Christ. So, of course, if, if we are Christians, we must clothe ourselves with the righteousness of Christ. But that doesn't mean that we as Christians are not also called to cultivate righteousness ourselves. And especially in this context, as we stand against the world and the flesh and the devil, we must be people who, who wear a breastplate of righteousness, people who, who pursue holiness, people who cultivate obedience. The Christian life is not a passive life, it's an active life. And if we are to stand firm, we must be holy people. Isn't that what Peter said to the scattered disciples in the first century who were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. He said, God tells you, be you holy as I am holy. In fact, I think there are a lot of parallels between what we read in this verse and what we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Listen to what Peter says to the disciples there. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Do you see that warfare language again? So what does he say in light of this war that they're in? He says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The Bible is actually full of this language. It pushes us to pursue holiness. It forces us 
to cultivate righteousness, not so that we can stand before God and say, look at all the good things I've done, you must let me into heaven. No, of course not. But so that we can stand before a watching world and show them this is what righteousness looks like. This is what godliness means. This is who our king is like. Now, none of us will do that perfectly. If we did it perfectly, we wouldn't have these words from Paul. We wouldn't have these words from Peter because it would just happen. As magical Christians, we'd instantly be holy. All of us know that's not the case. It's something we have to pursue. It's something we have to pray for. It's something we have to, as it says here, put on. But I think that's what the belt of truth and breastplate of righteousness are getting at. It's warning us of the danger of hypocrisy in the Christian life. What about the third piece of the armor? Look at verse 15. Paul says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The shoes of readiness is the the third piece of our armor. And there's a wonderful picture for us here. Paul's saying that as Christians, and Christians engaged in warfare, we have our grounding in the gospel. Now, have you ever done any wrestling or martial arts or fighting, or maybe you've just seen it on TV, but whatever your experience level, you've probably noticed that footwork is very important. Lots of times we think of fighting in terms of what you do with your hands, and that matters. But really good fighters know that their footwork is absolutely key. And oftentimes when you're watching two people wrestle or fight, the battle is lost or won when one person loses their footing. They slip, they stumble, maybe the terrain is uneven, and they fall, and it's all over at that point. And so it's very important to have firm footing, to to stand strong. Indeed, remember the basic command here is what? Stand firm. And what Paul tells us is that God has given us somewhere to stand. We We are made ready by the gospel of peace. This is one of those paradoxes of the Christian life. The gospel of peace prepares us to stand in the midst of war. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So the question for us is, are we grounded in the gospel? If you've grown up in the church, if you're a Christian at all, you know the basics of the gospel. I'm a sinner, he is my savior. But oftentimes we think of the Christian life as kind of a a graduating um, thing, where when you're kind of a baby Christian, maybe you're a child, you learn that basic gospel, I'm a sinner, he's my savior, but then you have to move on to other things, deeper theology, um, greater acts of obedience. That's not the way the Bible thinks of it at all. We never move on from the gospel. We never graduate from the gospel. Rather, Christian maturity means that we get a hold of those basics in deeper and more profound ways. But we're not moving on from the basic truths of Scripture. So the question for many of us is, yes, maybe we can say in simple terms what the gospel is, but have we delved deep into these things? Do we love the gospel? Do we speak about the gospel? Does it make you uncomfortable to talk even with your spouse or your children about Christian things, about your faith, about the word of God? Satan wants us to kind of assume that we know what the gospel is. He doesn't want it spoken out loud. He wants it referenced and and hidden in different ways. And we can sometimes hide the gospel in plain sight. But to be grounded in the gospel means that this is where you stand. This is what you root yourself in. And so if we are to be 
firmly rooted here in the gospel, it means that we will delve into these things in every way that we can. We'll speak of the gospel. We'll pray about the gospel. We'll proclaim the gospel. We'll sing about the gospel. We will be grounded in the gospel because we have been given these shoes of readiness. What about the fourth piece of armor? Well, the fourth piece is the shield of faith. Look at verse 16. This is one of those exciting verses for little boys. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, if you've ever seen a a movie about Roman soldiers or you've seen pictures of Roman soldiers, you know the kind of shield that that Paul is thinking of here. It's, It's not a little round shield or something. It's a big shield, four feet tall, two feet wide, incredibly strong. In fact, the Romans uh, were able to use their shields very effectively in battle. They were so strong, they would create walls with their shields. And sometimes kids, here's what they would do. If they needed to break through the enemy ranks, they would create a square. And they would have soldiers standing just side to side, creating a wall of shields in a perfect square. And the men in the middle would just put their shields over their heads, and that would protect them so that it was a perfect box of shields. They called it the tortoise formation because it's like a turtle shell. And people could throw spears or could hit it with rocks or try to attack it in all sorts of ways and nothing could break through because it's perfectly protected. It was said by one of the ancient historians that, uh, that, that that formation was so strong you could drive a chariot across the top of it. Now, sometimes people would try to get past the shields by shooting fiery arrows at them because the shields are made of wood. So what happens when you're holding that shield and it catches on fire? Well, you have to drop it, right? You lose your shield and now you're exposed. The enemy can get at you. But what the Romans did, they were some of the best soldiers in the world. They were smart. So before they went into any battle, they doused their shield in water so that any arrow that hit would just burn out and they could march on. That's the picture Paul gives us here. He says that's what faith does for the Christian. That's what faith is like. Because Satan is a marksman. You know, if you were in a battle and some big burly guy came yelling at you and he's wielding a battle axe, that might be very scary. But you can see him coming, you can try to prepare yourself. Satan doesn't act that way. For all of his strength, he's, he's basically a sneak. And he hides in the bushes and he looks for a spot to jump out and shoot at you. You don't see the arrow coming. It flies in out of nowhere. And so to have a shield that can protect your body is very, very important. And Paul says, that's what our faith does. There's a lot of different ways we can define faith or think about faith. One of my favorite short definitions actually comes from Luther. Luther liked to talk about faith as taking God at his word. Faith is taking God at his word. In other words, if God says something, you believe it. It's almost so obvious um, that that uh, we don't even think about it. But that's what faith means. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. If God says something is not going to happen, it's not going to happen. Now, in order to take God at his word, we have to listen to his word, right? This is a key part of the shield of faith. And so we as, as Christians have to study the word of God. We have to meditate on the Word of God. We have to memorize the Word of God. 
Do you know the word well enough that when Satan shoots his arrows, you can block and defend against them? When you've fallen into sin again and again and again, and Satan comes and he whispers in your ear, how in the world do you think you're a Christian? You just did that again, and you didn't slip into it. You walked right into it with your eyes open. How in the world can you be a Christian? Are you able to take 1 John 1 and say, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we feel like God is not listening to us, when we feel like God is silent in the midst of trials or in the midst of struggles, do we go to Jeremiah 33 and hear the word of the Lord, Call on me and I will answer you and show you hidden things that you have not known. We cannot wield the shield of faith if we do not know the word of God. This is a very important piece of our armor. The fifth piece is the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. And this makes sense, doesn't it? If you're fighting, where do you really want to hit? You want to hit the head. That does the most damage. And we all know this instinctively. If someone throws a, 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 a ball at you or something, what's the first thing that you do when it comes flying towards your face? You move your head away and you put your arms up. Now your arms will still get hit, but we all know without even thinking about it that I'd rather get hit in my arm than in my head because this is going to hurt a whole lot more. And Satan knows that too. He goes for the head and the head here is salvation. Satan has two great desires. If you are not a Christian, he does not want you to be saved. And if you are a Christian, he wants you to doubt that you're saved. So each of us has to ask ourselves two questions. First, am I saved? Do I have salvation? Let me address this specifically to you teenagers here who maybe have grown up in the church. You're in Bible-believing families. You've gone to Bible-believing churches. You know much of the Bible. But are you saved? If your family was not here today, would you be here today? If your family didn't talk about Jesus, would you talk about Jesus? Do you have a personal faith in Jesus Christ? Have you professed that faith before the church? If not, why not? Are you saved? If you are not saved, you're going up against the most fearsome foe imaginable, Satan himself, with no helmet at all on your head. If you are a Christian, hold tight to that salvation. Again, salvation is not kind of the basic beginner stuff that we start with and then we graduate on to other things. This is an essential part of our armor. So nurture and cultivate an assurance of faith, an assurance of salvation from the Word of God. Know Christ, know His benefits, and be able to say in the face of all doubts and all temptations, that Christ is my Christ. That gospel is my gospel. This faith is not just my parents' faith, or my friends' faith, or my church's faith, or my culture's faith. It is my faith, and I have the helmet of salvation to protect me against all of Satan's attacks. 
Now each of these pieces of equipment, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, these are all really important, are they? You wouldn't want to go into battle without any of these. And yet if you walk into battle with these five pieces of equipment, the best you can do is kind of be on the defensive, right? You have nothing to fight back with. And that's how some Christians actually think about the Christian life. You can hear it in the way that we talk. I've just got to get through another week. If I can just kind of survive, that'd be great. Now imagine again that you're on the front lines and the soldier next to you has one goal and one goal only. Make it out alive. You'd think, you're not really understanding why you're here, are you? You don't get it. We're in a battle. We're in a war. You're a soldier. You've been trained and paid and called to take the fight to the enemy. To fight offensively as well. And that's what we're called to, too. And so Paul mentions one last piece of armor in verse 17. He says, The sword of the Spirit. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now notice here that the Spirit and the Word go together. They must always go together. There are many people that want to seek out the Spirit without the Word, and they end up falling right into Satan's traps. There are others who push aside the Spirit. They don't think it's important to be saved. They don't think it's important to be regenerated. And they just try to master the Word as it stands. Satan eats them for breakfast. Godly people, wise Christians, recognize that the Spirit and the Word always go together. And that it's through the Word that we're able to take the battle to the enemy. Kids, do you remember one of the first things that Christ did in His ministry? If you look at the Gospels, what's one of the first things He did? In almost all the Gospel accounts, it says that the Spirit led Christ into the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan for 40 days. You remember how that played out? Satan would come to Jesus and he'd say, Jesus, have you read where it says... And he quotes some scripture. Now Satan, of course, was misusing scripture. He's looking at the word without the spirit at all, trying to twist the scriptures to push Christ off of his mission. How did Jesus respond to that? Well, he, as the word of God, knew the word of God far better than Satan. And so we have this picture of Christ, the word, taking up the word, not just to beat back Satan's blows, but to force him to retreat. Satan withdraws and then comes back and withdraws and then comes back. Now the heading in most of our Bibles over that story is something like the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. That's not a bad heading, but I wish it read something more like this, the combat of Christ in the wilderness. I read a a good little book by one of the Puritans, William Perkins, on that story. And and the title of his book was something like, uh, it was much longer than this, but the short version was, the combat of of Christ with the devil in the wilderness. I think that gets at it. It shows us that what we're reading about here has already been done. William Hendrickson put it this way, When Jesus was tempted by Satan, he answered every word of the devil by an appeal to the written word of God. That's what it looks like to wield the sword of the Spirit well. So then our last question, how do we use the word of God? How do we use the armor of God? What does it look like to actually stand firm? What does it look like to, to fasten on the belt of truth or, or put on the breastplate of righteousness or, or take up the helmet of salvation? How do we use this? 
I think the first thing to recognize is that the, the list of things we have here are not a kind of magical six-step plan to the perfect Christian life. I think growing up, I often thought about the armor of God in, in something like that way. You, you have to kind of figure out how to get the belt of truth and, and how, to, how to take up the shield of faith. And if you can just kind of master each of these techniques or disciplines or devices, then you'll be kind of a, a mature Christian and, and you can go on your way and be the super saint. But that's not actually what's going on here. And we know that partially because Paul elsewhere uses very similar language, but he'll kind of tweak things. So he'll talk in some of his other letters about things like the breastplate of truth and love. Well, now you go, wait a minute. If this is kind of things for us to master, are there two breastplates? You know, breastplate of righteousness and then a breastplate of, of love, and maybe I wear one sometimes and one... No, that's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is doing is using this imagery of a Christian in complete armor to show us what a faithful, godly Christian man or Christian woman looks like. He's showing us what it means to stand firm. So the point here is not all the individual pieces, as helpful as they are. The point here is the overall picture of a Christian who has the mindset that he is in a battle and who has been given these means to stand firm in that battle. And so really, um, the armor of God is pointing us back to the importance of growing in our faith as Christians. And so the first way I think that we use the armor of God is by the exercise of our faith. Now I'm using that word exercise intentionally. We don't use that all the time in this kind of context. That's kind of an older way of speaking. But it's actually really helpful. And if you grab onto that word exercise, it gets us closer to knowing what it looks like to use the armor of God well. Um, probably most of us are not as active or healthy as we would like to be. But we know, at least abstractly, what it takes to get in shape, right? Someone who really wants to be healthy physically, who wants to exercise their body, is going to be focused on a few things. They're going to develop healthy habits of eating, first off. There's going to be some foods they just don't touch. Others that they only eat in moderation. Some things they make sure they eat to kind of feed and build up their body. And of course, healthy people are going to be active. They're going to go to the gym. They're going to be involved in sports. They're going to do, take a job where they, they use their body. They stretch and change and challenge themselves. Oftentimes, they'll hire a trainer or, or go to a class that will help them grow in their health. They're going to be intentional about their rest, getting good sleep, taking days off so their body can rebuild and recover. And while it can be very difficult to do, in many ways, it's not complicated. So those three things, diet, exercise, and sleep, is basically what you need to be a healthy human being. And the same is true for our faith. I think growing up, I'd hear people talk about growing as a Christian or, or being strong as a Christian, and it was always a little fuzzy about what that looks like on my calendar. But God's Word gives us guidance. Not to be too obvious, but a faithful Christian, the kind of Christian that is described by the armor of God, is a Christian who's full of faith. Faith feeds faithfulness. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is it that feeds our faith? If we want to be the kind of Christian that's described here by the armor of God, how do we build up that faith? And just as physically there are certain things that we have to focus on and prioritize and habits we have to develop, the same is true spiritually as well. We could spend a whole sermon on this, but, but basically the things that build us up are, are, are what we call the means of grace, the Word of God, the sacraments, prayer, 
Each of these things, in, in their own way and in their own place, help to build up our faith. Not in a magical way. It's not as if just by sitting under a sermon or taking the Lord's Supper or keeping your eyes closed and your hands folded during a prayer automatically makes you a stronger Christian. No, we have to, to use faith to build faith, right? Um, but as we do that, Christ builds up our faith. He makes us more like himself. As we seek out communion with him, as we meditate on the word, as we pay attention to the sermons that we hear and we discuss them with people afterwards, as we go even beyond these basic means to, to other things, going to, to conferences, listening to good music, um, whatever it might be, there's all sorts of means that God gives to build us up in our Christian life. And as we do that, we're using the armor of God. As we walk with Him, as we seek to put sin to death, as we seek to grow in our Christian life, we're able to look in the mirror and see, hey, the belt of truth is there. It's helping us. It's serving us. If we memorize God's Word, we're able to encounter with the devil and, and beat back his attacks with the shield of faith and even cause him to retreat with the sword of the Spirit. So in many ways, it's nothing magical. It's nothing mystical. It's nothing complicated. The armor of God is not kind of the, the next level for people who really want to be super Christians. This is about the basics of the Christian faith. As we exercise our faith, we use the armor of God. But there's a caution here, of course, and we'll end with this. You could listen to all that we've said so far and think that this passage is telling you, do more, try harder, be better. You know, build these habits. You're not being healthy enough. You're not spending enough time in the Word. You're not exercising your faith enough. You need to kind of get your act together. And of course, the Christian life is an active life. Paul is calling us to battle. He's giving us imperative. There are things we must do in light of this passage. However, our action, our obedience, is always rooted in the action and obedience of Christ. And we cannot separate these verses from all that we've read in the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is about one person, and it's not you. It's about Jesus Christ, first and foremost, and us as we are in Christ. And that's true here in this passage as well. Have you ever wondered where Paul got this imagery of the armor of God? A lot of people assume that, you know, Paul's sitting there, he's in a Roman prison as he's writing this. He's chained probably to a Roman guard so he can't escape. And people kind of assume, well, Paul's writing the book of Ephesians and he's looking around his jail cell and he goes, hey, you know, there's, 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 there's Marcus there, you know, Roman soldier. He's got a helmet, he's got a shield. That's a great sermon illustration. I'm going to use that. And he starts writing about the armor of God. I don't think that's the case. For one thing, some of the things he describes here a Roman soldier would not have had, especially if he's in a jail cell. And some of the most important pieces of Roman equipment, like the javelin and the spear, are not mentioned at all. I think, in fact, what you find, while there are parallels with the Roman armor, as we've seen already, the basic imagery Paul uses actually comes from the Old Testament. Let me just read you a few verses. Keep your eyes in Ephesians 6, 14 to 17 as I read some of these verses and see if you can see the connections here. Most of these verses come from the book of Isaiah, and all of them are or most of them are describing God himself, actually, as a warrior. So we read verses like this. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation 
on his head. Isaiah 59, 17. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Isaiah 11, verse 5. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Isaiah 52, 7. From the book of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Genesis 15, 1. Do you see how the pictures that are being used here in Ephesians 6 are not just kind of cultural examples that Paul thought of off the top of his head. They're actually rooted in the way that God describes himself in the Bible. Sometimes we can be uncomfortable with the idea of of Christians as warriors, but we serve a warrior God. And so to be a Christian is to be a Christian soldier. And the armor that we wear, notice how it's described. What is it called? The armor of God. Not the armor of the believer or the armor of the saint or the armor of the Christian, the armor of God. Christ has worn this armor before us. And that's what gives us confidence in its effectiveness. It's battle-tested. It's proven. And so we know that this armor, using this armor, is not just about using the right means. It's not just about strengthening our faith in the abstract. It's linked with the object of our faith. If I say I have faith in my wife, I trust my wife, the focus of what I'm talking about is not kind of my abstract faith over here. It's my wife. It's her as a person. And in the same way, to cultivate faith is not to build up some abstract thing. It's to build up our tangible, real trust and reliance, receiving and resting on Christ as he's offered in the gospel. Listen to the words of uh, Hebrew scholar Ian Duguid writing about some of these Old Testament passages. He says, Most importantly, the Old Testament background challenges the common view that the Christian armor is primarily a set of disciplines we must perform to measure up as Christians. It is certainly true that God's armor describes essential qualities for us to pursue passionately if we are to stand firm under Satan's assault. Yet, the armor is first and foremost God's armor rather than ours. Through the gospel, the divine warrior gives us his equipment, which he wore first triumphantly in our place in his struggle against the forces of evil. Jesus Christ is the triumphant warrior over Satan and death and sin through his faithfulness and righteousness. And so his victory is now credited to us as if it were our own. Because he stood firm in his battle, we Christians, weak, fearful, and unprepared as we so often are, also will ultimately stand. By faith, his righteousness became ours. And in Christ, a phrase Paul loves to use in Ephesians, in Christ, we have a shield of refuge in God who will never leave us nor forsake us. This is the good news that we have been given the privilege of heralding far and wide throughout the world as well as preaching it to our own hearts on a daily basis. So the armor of God 
is not just another obligation. It speaks mercy and grace to broken sinners and a salvation that the combined forces of hell itself can never steal from us as we rest in Him. We're almost to the end of the book of Ephesians. As we think about these six chapters, there's a lot of ground that Paul has covered. And I don't think he's talking about spiritual warfare here as kind of an add-on tacked to the end of his little letter. This is the point. He's building here to the battle. He's trying to show us we have to have the mindset that we are in battle. We have to grab hold of the means here seen in the armor of God. And we have to do so as those who are following the model of Jesus Christ, who is not only our example, but our captain and our substitute. Amen. It's our practice here at Kirk of the Plains to take a few moments to meditate in silence on the Word of God. So let's do that now together.